As they say in the musical Hamilton, tuning into this podcast, you are officially in the room where it happens. Welcome to In the Room. Hosted by Canvas Credit Union President and CEO Todd Marksberry, In the Room focuses on the journeys and advice of CEOs and owners alternating between Colorado organizations and credit unions across the world. Join us as Todd and Company demystify leadership and explore the many rooms leaders occupy. You're listening to In the Room. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our uh, podcast this week for In the Room with Todd Marksbury. Today, I'm super excited to have uh, a, a, from what I have been told, a genius, just a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to tell us about it. He's going to share his brilliance and his genius with us. Um, but I'm excited uh, to have Sekou uh, Burmese, uh, who is an associate professor at the Kenan Flagler, Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Incredible, incredible school. Uh, he received his BS in chemical engineering at Rensselaer. And actually, if you look that up on Google, there are like three different pronunciations for that. Rensselaer, Rensselaer. Um, but uh, that school in New York, he has his MS and his PhD in management and organizations from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Uh, and he conducts research in the area of strategic human capital management, where he explores the micro foundations of competitive advantage by studying the antecedents and the consequences. Say that again, antecedents and consequences. He's going to tell us about what antecedents means um, of, of manager mobility and how different forms of employee movement impact a firm's ability to compete with rivals. The, you know, and it's going to be really interesting because given this time, these past five months, um, what his area of expertise, um, he can bring to bear, he can really help us in that regard. So this is really interesting. His his award-winning research has been published in Administrative Science Quarterly, Organization Science, Strategic Managed Journal, and, and Research and Organizational Behavior. Um, he's also been highlighted in the Harvard Business Review and National Public Radio. Uh, he worked as a management consultant for Deloitte & Touche in New York City, and uh, we got to know him through collaboration with the Feline Research Institute, our industry's independent think tank. So having said that, welcome. Seku to uh, in the room. Well, thank you for having me. Um, thank you for setting the bar just right exactly where I need it. You called me a genius, I believe. And so now I can only disappoint. So no, um, nowhere but down from there, my friend, right? Nowhere but down. No, <laughs> you're not going to disappoint. So, hey, I, I gave the, uh, the, the obligatory uh, biography. In your own words, tell us about your story, your journey, and t- as far as just you know, you can all the way back, personal, professional, um, what led you to where you are today? Yeah, I guess uh, without going too too far back, I'd say the the nugget of, of uh, me becoming an academic began when I started working a, as a consultant at Deloitte. Uh, and I just graduated. I was an engineer undergrad working in management consulting. So working in business, going to the dark side, so to speak. And uh, I was fascinated with organizations and how they operate as systems. So I, I kind of brought my engineering mindset into kind of organizational space. And I was just fascinated with things, how they worked. I'm really fascinated with how things don't work, how they fail. Um, and uh, I found myself really interested in things that had nothing to do with the project I was working on. And uh, I was lucky enough to have managers that kind of pointed this out to me. They said, you're, you're genuinely curious about stuff. And maybe you know you should think about academia. 
And so I was uh, fortunate enough to have a, a mentor that was getting his PhD at Columbia at the time. And uh, he put that bug in my ear and kind of, I went to work with him as a research associate, you know, just on, like, this is what I was doing on my weekends, right? So I was working 60, 70 hours. And then on the weekends, I was doing literature reviews for, for him and I loved it. And uh, the minute that I saw that, I, I really started to think about, all right, what's a different path? And um, interestingly enough, I was thinking about this, uh, having to tell the story recently, 9-11 kind of really was the, the pivot point for me. Um, so I worked you know, at World Financial Center, so it was decimated uh, during 9-11, lost friends, lost you know, uh, people I knew, client sites you know, decimated, and people at, that I was working with, and we were 24, 25 at the time, were kind of all, is this what we wanna do? Like, is, are we doing what we love? And I realized, I think I love academia. I think I want to study stuff for a living. And so that kind of set me on the path to Northwestern, um, to University of Texas, and now at North Carolina. So it was, uh, I was the beneficiary of some mentoring that really saw things in me that I didn't see. And then um, I snatched, you know, I didn't hesitate. And it likely was due to just being in a, in a mind, in a, in a place where I had to, Re really think about what what do I an existential crisis, which I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with because it's probably happening right now to a lot of people. Right. So so tell me about um, how 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 long were you at the University of Texas there in Austin? So I was there for ten years. And how was that time? It's all great, right? Everything. Yeah. Was oh man, you know it was hot. No, it was uh, it was really good. So it was my first job after graduate school and. UT is just such an amazing place to be. I'm a New Yorker, so Texas, I knew nothing of. When I mentioned to my wife, who was then my fiance, like, we're gonna go to Texas. And she was like, like Houston or Dallas, you know, which was the all we knew of Texas. She's like, no, Austin. She was like, I don't even know what that is. And so a lot of it was me learning about Austin and learning about Texas and the Texas way. And uh, I was embraced being, even being a Yankee, I was embraced and, uh, you know, really started to understand how the economy operates in, in very different parts of the country. I think I, I still had a very East Coast biased way of thinking about how things get done. And so living in Texas for a decade has really kind of opened up my mind to there are whole ecosystems, whole industries that do not care about New York. <laughs> and, right. uh, and once I realized that, then I saw like, oh, there are really a lot of interesting kind of ecosystems and uh, industries that are operating and that got me into a lot of uh, kind of other areas. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I uh, Seku, I lived in, in Manhattan for a time before I was married, you know, this is probably 30 years ago. And uh, I, I, I came from the West and, and similarly, I was when I was spending all that time in Manhattan, uh, I, I realized that most of those people, it was just a weird thing, right? They were like, you know, uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Kentucky. They're like, where, so where, where is Kentucky? You know, I'm like, you did have, go to history class, right? You, you, geography, you did have geography, right? Uh, you know, there's a bubble right there in, in New York. Yeah. So tell me about, uh, you've transitioned now to UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's your, what is your uh, new role? And, and how does that compare to what you were doing at uh, UT? 
Yeah, so in a lot of in a lot of ways, it's the same. So I was an associate professor with tenure at University of Texas. I'll be an associate professor with tenure at University of North Carolina. The, the primary differences, so the things that say the same are I'm going to teach and I'm going to do my research that I've been doing, right? So I do a lot of stuff looking at what I call strategic human capital. You might think of like uh, HR, just uh, tying it to firm outcomes such as um, uh, competitive advantage, right? So profits, losses, survival, those kind of things. So I'm really interested in how people matter uh, to organizations. Uh, so I'm gonna be doing a lot of that just in a different place. Um, but I was also involved, so I was a director of the entrepreneurship minor at University of Texas. And so it was a brand new minor that we had started to really get, uh, put some curricular frameworks around undergraduates that were looking to become entrepreneurs. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And so I'm moving into a new university. I don't know quite yet how that works, but I'm in a strategy and entrepreneurship department. So entrepreneurship is really important. And uh, there are tons of Southeastern-based entrepreneurship kind of things, right? So entrepreneurship in North Carolina is very different than in Texas. And so a lot of what I'll be doing is trying to understand that and, and see where I can fit in as far as my teaching and my research. So I'm, I'm excited about that. So so let me ask you, let me jump into the expertise, brilliance, genius part of Let's of do it. It's time. Yeah. You know, our listeners are going to be really, really curious, um, given that um, your area of expertise of what we can in the corporate world, um, what we can learn during such a unique time right now as it relates to talent and organizational structure. Is that a fair question? Oh, yes. I mean, so if, if even if you just look at something as mundane as remote working, so there's a long history of remote work. Research is a lot of, I, I teach a, uh, an exec course on leading di uh, dispersed teams. And so we kind of knew a fair bit, but you know, the research we did was research on what happens in organizations, which is, you know, very much like we pick certain things to be outsourced. We pick certain people that go out there. Now every organization is forced to be remote, right? So every position or most positions are now remote. That's going to allow us if, you know, where we're interested to test some things that we thought were true before, but now we can actually see. Um, some, some things that we thought, eh, we could do this remotely. We're gonna realize, oh no, we can't, we cannot. And other things that we thought we could never have this be someone living, you know, we never see them. And now we realize it actually doesn't work as badly as we thought, right? And so there's a, you know, there's a mass intervention that's happening due to COVID where people are forced without any previous understanding, you know, they didn't get to select, it just happened to everyone. And so those kind of exogenous shocks are great for understanding and, 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 and teasing out cause and effects in organizations. So there's a lot of opportunities. Obviously I wish it did, uh, the circumstances weren't the case, but you try to make the, the, the opportunity out of the crisis. And so that's one of the ways you can do it for sure. So let me ask you this question. I was having this conversation last night on this note mm -hmm. with, a uh, brother-in-law of mine, and um, he, we were talking about, uh, uh, he works for a government agency up in Wisconsin, but we were talking about, he was asking me about, hey, tell me how you guys, you know, how did you guys adjust in terms of your, you know, your people who work in the back office, et cetera. And I told him, I said, we moved 400 people in, the, in a court, like so many places did, in, uh, you know, week and a half, two weeks to working remotely. 
and he was really curious about, so, so what have you experienced so far? Right. You know, and he was specifically, he said, I'm, I'm talking about like the employees. I, I'd imagine everybody's far more efficient, you know, and, and you're, or you're finding that out. And I said, and I'm, and I'm telling you this to tell I'd love to get your thoughts. It, it was all purely anecdotal. I said, I, I don't really have any, the only statistical evidence I have um, is a survey we did where 90% of our 400 and some odd people said, I'm, I've never been as efficient as I am now, right? We have production reports that would prove otherwise, yeah. um, and, and not across the board, right? But I've been saying, I told him, I said, we feel like we have three categories. We have a, a, a bucket, if you will, of people who absolutely we have evidence of, of uh, the fact that they're far more uh, productive, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have another bucket of people that they are far less productive, significantly less productive. And, and I said, in this bucket, as far as more productive, the, there are folks that um, literally have said, I've talked to them and they said, I am far more productive. However, please, dear God, bring me back into the office because I need human interaction. Yep. I wasn't meant to be a third grade teacher. Yep. I'd like to stay married. You know, it's, it's really difficult. And, and I love, I just, I, I miss the camaraderie and the teamwork, et cetera. Yeah. And then we have um, some folks who are far more efficient, who are, uh, um, they're not as, as outgoing and the like, and they don't necessarily need the camaraderie, if you will. And they're yeah. like, can I stay home? Because I really would rather not talk to a bunch of people. Yep. Um, the unproductive group, we have some who are saying they're a little bit tone deaf. I'm awesome. And we're like, ah, that's not the case. And then you have in that group, and this is, I'll stop when I say this, in that group, which I love, a group of them who've said, hey, listen, I know you guys see production reports. I'm terrible at this work at home thing. So before you fire me, can I please come back into the office? Because I, I lack structure and discipline and I just can't do this thing. I get distracted very easily. And I, I, I'd love to get your thought on that. And that's all anecdotal. There's no scientific yeah. data that I have. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting. The, the productivity reports are really, you know, what, what key it in for me, right? Um, to the extent that you can measure productivity for individuals, you can do it by teams, but it can be kind of dicey for certain tasks and, and not so dicey for other ones. That's kind of where you start. And then you, you hypothesize. Right. And so um, the, one of the things you might say is, well, if I'm working and I have no one who's reporting into me. Right. So my job is all about my skill set. So I'm in sales or I'm in something like that. I might actually thrive working from home. Right. Because everything I need, I'm not very wholly dependent on other folks. You know, another hypothesis and, you know, you probably find this maybe in these groups is people who work in a collaborative kind of products, right, where either they are uh, managing a group of folks or they work and their outputs directly inform someone else's inputs. And so that back and forth is important. They're probably having a a tougher time because interaction is way more costly and and way more exhausting now virtually than in person. So if my job is to be an interface, I'm going to hate working from home. This is going to be exhausting, right? I'm going to burn out. Um, And so it doesn't surprise me that you have those two buckets, the, pro, the productive and the non-productive. I, I would assume some of that has to do with the type of work that they're doing. Um, and then you do have kind of fit 
issues, personalities that 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 play a role as well. Um, but you know, the the biggest thing is probably the type of work because what you'll find is certain types of work attract certain types of people, right? If I'm an introvert and I don't like interacting with people, I'm probably not going to try to get a job that puts me in the middle of the action, right? And so um, you'll probably find those two things are kind of related. Um, what I find interesting, and I guess uh, I'm curious to think what your what you think is driving this is the people who are working from home and not being productive <laughs> and are un don't know they're not being productive. What do you think is a common driver of that, right? So I, I would be curious, I mean, to the extent that they maybe um, don't have a good sense of how, you know, the big picture of the work, like how my task helps other folks, right? So the systematic understanding of the organization. And so that's why maybe they're a little bit um, unaware of how how well they're performing. I think, you know, it's it's pure theory. Um, and and it, a lot of this would be based on, I've been, I've been working in credit unions for 28 years in, in leadership roles. And so it's kind of observ through observation, but I think there's, there are a group of people who would fall into that unproductive, if you will, um, who, uh, you know, they, they probably, when they're sitting at home, I'm going to guess that their respective leader might not be able to be as engaged with them on a daily basis, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. my guess is, is that means that out of sight, out of mind kind of thing where somebody's not, and I'm not saying we don't have an environment where people are staying on them, but, but you know how it is. Sometimes it's just somebody walking, a leader walking by a group of workstations and just say, hey guys, how's it going? And knowing you have to kind of, for somebody who doesn't necessarily have that type of discipline, yeah. knowing, you know, oh, the boss is coming. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Oh, mm -hmm. such and such is coming. And, you know, let me make sure. And, and not that they're slacking until they walk by, but it's, I think it's, my gut tells me it's just the presence of people who are being friendly and they're being around. And not only that, but being side by side, if you will, in a workstation, in, in, a, in an area, work area, where people are collaborating and they're talking and things like that. You know, the team, if you're doing like functions, the team is going to know if somebody is just sort of slacking off. Yep. Whereas if you're working at home, somebody like that, and they want to get up and go to the refrigerator and then sit down on the couch and maybe not log back into the system for the next hour and a half. Nobody's going to necessarily know. Uh, I, I, that's my theory. That's, yeah. I, I think that that's the case. And, and I don't know how you solve for that other than, you know, knowing that they're, it's fit. You said it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just, it's the fit isn't there with certain people, but it absolutely we have found is driven by, um, functions, you know, what somebody does. Interestingly, you, you know, you always talk about data driven, you know, using a data driven approach to getting and keeping the right people. Um, this kind of falls into that category. Um, tell us what you mean when you say that. Yeah. So I, I, I gave you a little snippet of what I do in a lot of my, my classes. So I teach this people analytics course and all the way I describe it to people is, that we all have kind of these lay theories about how we think things operate, how, or, you know, people kind of issues, right? What motivates people? What's a sign of a good a candidate? How do you know when someone isn't working out in the org? We have these theories. Um, part of the, the, the 
the joy and uh, the pain of working in this kind of field of people is that everyone kind of feels there. They have some, I've worked a while, I, I know stuff. Um, but a lot of it is anecdotal, like you said. And so all I do is say like, all right, if that hunch, if that theory is correct, what should we see in the data? If I then took a survey of all of your employees um, and asked them some assessment around the way they structure their own work or their personality or XYZ, is that going to be positively or negatively correlated with productivity, right? And so it's, uh, it's a phrase um, I, I heard from uh, in, under, in, in, in my uh, graduate program. And I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this to me now. So forgive me, the person who said this, but applying, myth to met, applying um, math to metaphor. And so part of my job as a social scientist is to say like, I think people are saying this, there are these rules of thumb. It, has anyone seen if this is actually true? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's the opposite, <laughs> you know? And yeah. so what the joy I find in, in, my, in my kind of research is most of the times I am testing things that a lot of people already kind of have a, a view, oh, we should see that or we shouldn't. And the minute I find that there's a, a disagreement, then I'm like, all right, whatever I find is going to be interesting to somebody. And now I have a paper. Right. And so those kind of questions uh, kind of really drive me. And I, and I can give, you know, examples on, on stuff that I've done on this. But having worked for a little while, I always have a, a good sense of this really is a question that if I pulled in a bunch of people, half would say it should work one way, half would say it should work another way. And no one knows why. And so now I can test that and then I can hopefully, you know, resolve it. And then that should improve policy making kind of as you move forward right at the end of the day i i don't want to do it just to say haha you're wrong i want to say like look you shouldn't be selecting people this way or you shouldn't be structuring your advertisements this way because what you think is happening is not happening and so you know change it and that should improve your ability to manage your people you know he uh interesting as you're saying this my brother-in-law also said he goes wouldn't it be cool if there was some research that came out of this period of time that that would uh so he, he said sort of like a myers-briggs kind of thing he said but some some profile that where you could run your your team through this filter if you will that would let you know whether or not somebody is is wired to be able to work in a remote environment yes well there are assessments of this that exist already what we're finding now is we're going to really be able to test them. So my, my guess is a lot of folks who have been studying this for, for years and years, and um, there were a couple of folks at University of Texas that I, I remember studying, you know, interacting with, and this is kind of what they did. They are for sure gathering tons and tons of data on this to verify if these surveys that they had before, these, these measures actually work and what tweaks they need to happen. So I tell your brother-in-law, I, I would be, uh, shocked if we didn't uh, emerge from this a year from now with, um, you know, a bunch of kind of really well-validated assessments of what are the factors that drive your ability to work remotely productively. Um, and then we could give them to people. Uh, and then you could help as you decide, all right, what areas are we going to leave remote or not? Hopefully, you know, we can kind of look at it. Right. Let me ask you, Seiko, what, what's, uh, this, this is shifting just a little bit, but what, uh, having worked at Deloitte Public, um, and then what's the difference between working for 
uh, in that particular sector in, in public and then over here at a, at a university uh, as far as academia. Um, Man, <laughs> it's like <laughs> night and day. Uh, the biggest thing is autonomy. Um, and this was something that I realized pretty early on that I valued. I valued being able to pick what I worked on. And uh, one of the things that frustrated me probably working into it was I just got put on a project. I had to be utilized. So I got put on a project and maybe I liked it, maybe I didn't. It really excited me to know and it excites me now every day I wake up and say, what are the things I want to work on? What are the questions I'm interested in diving into and being able to do that? Now, what that means, I have to pick well. If I don't pick the right things and I don't publish, then bad things start to happen, right? So there is some risk there, but for me, it was uh, the way I'm wired. I'd rather have the autonomy and fail than have no autonomy and be successful, but kind of be, um, you know, be, not be motivated, right? Kind of be uh, 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 lacking uh, a bit. Could be, un could be unfulfilling at times, right? Correct. Correct. I, you know, I didn't even know things like Maslow's hierarchy I, when I was at Deloitte, but I knew something was missing. And what I was, what was missing was that like, uh, that, that, uh, autonomy, but also kind of that self-actualization, right? That I'm going to set a goal for myself. I'm going to succeed and do it. And the gratification that I feel for doing that, even if it's not tied to any monetary thing, right? So, finding out something about organizations, you know, finding that I was curious about is true, is immensely satisfying to me. Um, I then take that and I give it away for free. I publish it and anyone can use it. I, I get, I, it's not like I copyright my findings and, and exploit it to make a ton of money. That part is less important to me. The part to me is really finding out those things. And once I realized that was the key driver for me, I knew academia was going to be a better path for me. You know, I leave money on the table. That's fine. You know, um, and, you know, I made the bet that in the long term, that would be more satisfying. Right. Well, let me ask you this. As you've worked more closely um, with credit unions, so jumping into to our industry uh, through your filing fellowship, you know, what have you found in all in this time to be some of our biggest challenges in, in, in our space and some of our biggest strategic advantages? Yeah, the, well, the challenges are... I think they're good challenges, right? So I knew very little about credit unions when I first started at Filene, actually. I mean, I was a member at University uh, Federal Credit Union here at UTA. It helped me buy a house. They helped me buy my car. They helped me do everything. Uh, but, you know, the whole idea of cooperative finance was not something that I was intricately aware of. And so first thing I just realized was what credit unions do and how they are different, right? So that differentiating factor from other um, kind of financial institutions. That to me is a huge uh, benefit, right? Having a clear differential is key. The problem is very few people know, really know about it, right? I found myself talking to other people like me who were like, yeah, so what's the difference between a credit union and these other things? And I was like, oh man, you knew. And once you tell people, they're like, oh, that's, Oh, I, yeah, I support that. That's, that's, that's key, right? And so I think one, uh, one of those things is about that, that knowledge or the differentiation that people had and, and talking to people that were, you know, and I talked to a lot of kind of executives, like, how'd you get into credit unions? And a lot of them gave me the story of like, yeah, I kind of just ambled, you know, 
was doing stuff and then I got a job at a credit union and realized like, oh, this is awesome. And now I've been here 20 years, but they didn't say like, hey, I set up in my mind, I wanted to work in this industry. They kind of discovered it. And thank God they discovered it. But I was like, there's gotta be a way to, you know, to, um, to get better market differentiations, right? So thinking about hiring and attracting talent, I think that's one of them, one of the, the challenges, one of the key challenges as I talk to folks. Um, but as far as benefits, I think, um, you know, being able to uh, have a very clear culture, vision, purpose, regardless of what's happening, right? So as things are happening right now with COVID, right? It's companies are trying to figure out how can we help our customers? And it's like, oh, guess what? That's what we've been doing forever, <laughs> right? So all right. we're gonna do is just do more of what we've been doing. And there is, that's a really difficult, uh, firms are searching for that. And I think that's something that credit unions have. And so they can always point to that and it, it's authentic, it's genuine, and it's been stable. And that can be an attractor for a lot of people from a talent perspective, but then also from a partnership perspective and, and the like, right? So I think it's, it's, a, it's once people know that that differentiation can be a strength, it's getting people to know all of the, the great things that credit unions are doing that I think is sometimes difficult. No, I agree with you. And you, you actually made me think of something. Uh, you know, we're going to get on the other side of this. And, and here's the, you just said something that, that resonated with me, and that is, Credit unions have always historically been um, good at this, even if we didn't see it as such, right? You know, meaning having, you know, being able to serve, you know, average folks, um, helping them with car loans and checking accounts and things like that. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, I, I, we, we would all say uh, within the industry that, oh, well, similarly, we, we've always taken really good care of our team. But, you know, this... We're going to get on the other side, but this pandemic is really impacting people. And, and you know, how do you see um, how we uh, it relates to how we're treating our employees or the or the expectations within the workplace? Is that a is that a does that question make sense? It's different. We're, we've always looked at, like I said, on the member facing side. It's like, oh, we're going to help them with car loans and we're going to give them deferrals. Yep. Over here on this side, ooh, so yep. what are we going to do with our employees? Yeah. So this is a great question. Um, so actually, we um, we had a, a, a symposium last year, and it was between um, my my uh, this is a Feline one, my one, which is talent focused, and the marketing one that was kind of marketing focused. And one of the things we really tried to do was get people in the room that could learn from one another. And what, and what I meant by that is exactly what you're saying, right? So there, here are these marketing folks who know about all these products that can help members. They studied mem you know, their membership. They know what they need and figure out the best way to get it to them. And then you have HR folks who are trying to figure out how to get their employees to sign up for certain uh, programs and do it. And we're like, you guys should be using the marketing strategies Right, the same way we target our membership, those tools can be utilized internally, you know. And so, getting those two groups, so, so sometimes it was just getting the the CHRO and the CMO to see the the ways and the complementarities within the organization. And so, you know, from that came a lot of discussions that I hope have continued in in, in some credit unions about learning from one another, so that you can 
you know, think about employees in a better way because it's become bare and what, what virus has done is kind of just stripped away a lot of the noise. And so we see things that maybe were hidden before, right? Some big things like people who are struggling with being caretakers, right? Kind of the difference between the burdens that people have at home, it's not even. And before we always knew that there was people with kids had, you know, some burdens with the people who taking care of, of parents had to deal with things differently than people who did not. But now with COVID, it's like, wow, this is a very stark and obvious thing that I can no longer just kind of sweep away. And so now we have to deal with it and we have to confront it. And it's, it's difficult. There are no easy answers, but doing so, I think, helps to resolve a problem that was festering kind of underneath and maybe uh, putting some light on that. And so in that way, I think there's another opportunity that can be born from the crisis. Right. You know, it's interesting. We, last year, we, uh, oh shoot, it's almost uh, coming up on two years, but we made the decision to, to combine under executive, you know, one executive leader, um, our marketing and our people. And, you know, because we were sitting and saying, Hey, listen, we're, we're, we're promoting the value proposition of our, of Canvas Credit Union, you know, here's what and how we can help you. Um, and, and we were like, you know, it might make really good sense to have the same person as far as driving that, the branding, you know, lead people so that we can, we can match those up. You know, our, our, our promise that we're making to the, to the public out here, we probably need to have the right people to do that. And uh, we've, again, we haven't done a white paper on it or anything, but, but the results seem to be, um, um, in, to, to speak for themselves right now. So it is, it's an interesting concept. Not a lot of companies do that. Let me guess, does this have any overlap with Tansley working there? Uh, maybe so. I mean, she might be the person, may or may not be the person responsible for those areas. But, yeah. uh, but you know, we have seen value, enormous value. Uh, as it relates to, again, what we're saying to the public and then, you know, how we're serving them. And as I always say, the promise that we're making, you know, we yeah. need to make good on the promise. Um, it's sort of, it's like that concept, Seku, like you, you have a salesperson who, who is at salespeople for a company, a software company, and then they're out there, they're out kicking their coverage. They're out there promising things. And then it gets back to the company. You've experienced that in Austin with all the tech companies down there where, you know, the, the support people are saying, what are you promising out there? We, we can't do that. It's crazy. So yep. let me ask you, who's who out there in the marketplace, uh, um, who's getting that right uh, as far as uh, the people side of things? Yeah, um, man, it's it's interesting to do it right. I, I get a lot of like, who's doing it wrong. Again, I tell you, I, I focus on like the dysfunction. Um, and so I need to... To, to think more about the the positives, but so there's a few um, companies that I highlight in my in my course, and so I'll go to those because those are probably easy. So one is a SaaS SAS, which is a software company based out of North Carolina, just happenstance. Um, but they are kind of the forefathers of the whole benefit tech benefit rich sort of model. So the Google. Facebook, where you come in and there's treats and food and everything. And so SaaS is a company, they're privately owned. So their company and the founder just said, I want 
employees to feel empowered and be happy and have things and not have to worry about stuff. And so he instituted a lot of these benefits to make it more comfortable to kind of work there, make it happy. It's this belief that if you're happy, I think you'll, you'll do better for the company and you, you know, everything else will be the case. So SAS is kind of the, one of the examples and there's been cases written about them and you know, the founders of Google went there and studied their culture and kind of moved. So you see it now in tons of companies, but it's kind of this uh, corporate welfare model. And um, you know, that sounds, I think it's kind of got a pejorative kind of label now, but I think we see now companies that take care of people is not a bad thing. <laughs> if you look out for the needs of your employees, it's not a bad thing. Um, but it's also not philanthropy, right? A corporation is not giving employees stuff just because they love giving. No, they're doing it because they expect to see the benefits of productivity on the other end. And so I also kind of implore my, my students, like regardless of how well you feel the company is, is, is treating you, if they are not good, if you're not producing, that company's not going to be in business long, right? And so there has to be kind of this this this, this smart um, even handedness to it. Um, so that's one company. Another one, very different from that, that I also highlight is uh, Wegmans. So uh, I don't know if they have Wegmans out uh, where you guys are, the grocery store. Are you familiar not, with them? Not here, but I am familiar with them. Yeah. Um, and so Wegmans is another great example of a company with very different than software companies, right? And that they have very thin margins. Uh, it's all about volume. Uh, and so, but still they spend a lot of money on developing their employees, making sure their employees have what they need. Um, they will forego profits for development uh, for their employees. And so um, another great example of, of, of companies that are doing it right. And, and the thing you find with all these companies is a founder or an executive that cares, that decides to make this a part of their, uh, a part of the, the company policy and sticks to it, right? Doesn't just throw it out at the minute there's a bad quarter. And so when you find those uh, and the founder of SAS, the founder of Wegmans, this was something that was really important to them. And so that's one of the things I also implore with my students. Yeah, Sekou, have you seen any, um, have you experienced any credit unions that you think might fall into this category? Yeah, I, I worry if I name one, I'm going to piss off some others. Uh, <laughs> Canvas, man, you guys are just crushing it. No. Um, <laughs> so uh, there are a few that I've been able to work with um, within uh, my, my work at, at Filene um, that I think are really doing some interesting things. So we had um, PenFed, the CEO at PenFed, uh, yep. and spoke, and he has a very very unique kind of way of thinking about kind of talent. Uh, and it's very much a, I'll take care of you with the expectation that you will rise to the challenge. Um, and so, you know, they're a huge one, right? Really big. And so they have the ability to kind of do some things that maybe smaller credit unions can't do. Um, but then uh, let's say on the flip side, a small one that won't alienate anybody. Um, <laughs> I think uh, so. You, you guys might be familiar with Ent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Credit Union. I had a chance to visit with them uh, earlier this year. And uh, that was also, they are also um, a credit union that I think is growing and recognizing before they get too big that they need to kind of formalize some of the things that were informal before. Right? So if, if, if they're, 
when I talk to credit unions that are having some troubles, it's because they started small and then they kind of grew and they realized too late that like, oh man, some of the institutional knowledge and the relationships aren't there anymore because we're too big. And so how do we kind of institute that? And so they're, they've done a good job, I think over the last year or so in really formalizing aspects of their culture that existed when they were small to make sure that it stays that way as they grow. Um, and so I'll use them as in, as f due to re recency, they're, they're the last credit union that I visited because, you know, COVID. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give them their shout out. So, so let me ask you this question and, and this jumps over into the personal, but you're a dad and, you know, talk, talk to us about how this crazy time uh, over the past six months has, has had an impact on your family, your kids. Well, I've lost all my hair, as you can see. No, uh, I, it it has been, uh, what do I say? I'll, I'll lead with the good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been a challenge, right, to say the least. The good is, so I have, my, my son is nine, my daughter's six. Um, I'm very thankful we have two because they can occupy one another's t attention. They have getting to know them and getting to see them kind of connect and grow closer has been truly, truly a delight, right? Like they now will just go off on their own and just talk, just have a conversation over like a snack. And I was like, they never did this before. They were just in their own separate. So they've kind of grown close and that's been really heartwarming. Uh, you know, on the flip side, I, I had to kind of be their teacher in the spring and that almost killed me, right? Uh, they they got to a point where they were like, we don't want to hear from you anymore, Dad. Like, we're done. Uh, and so in thinking about this school year, we've had to kind of really get creative because we're going to be virtual again on making sure we don't burn them out and we don't burn ourselves out, me and my wife. So uh, the doing everything at home and, and the claustrophobic nature of everyone being home has been tough. But I've tried to always look at it as I'm getting to know them in a way you know, like I know my kids now in a way I didn't before, right? Because I'm spending so much time with them. And I want to think that that's good, <laughs> even if sometimes it drives me crazy. So how is your talk, you know, brag a little bit about your wife, how she's, uh, um, how, you know, your partnership in, through this time. Obviously, you're not the only one teaching. No. Oh, Lord, no. So uh, my wife works at IBM uh, here in Austin. And will be transitioning to North Carolina as well, right? One of the benefits um, of working at a global company. So she works, she's been, what she, how she describes it is she's been ready for this. She's been trained for this. She's been working on global remote teams for the last two, three years. And so the being on conference calls all day, that didn't really phase her too much. So she's she was much more adjusted to I got a call, I got to hop off this call, then do something for the kids. And, and whereas me, I'm like, a, I get in my office, I have complete control over my environment. She was used to chaos. And so she was able to kind of manage things in a way that, uh, that I'm very grateful for. Um, but, you know, for her, not being in the office was, you know, has a, has a ton of kind of like issues around connecting with people. So I, I think she spends, she finds she spends a lot more time communicating over communicating just because things are getting lost kind of so much. Um, and so I try to coach her through a bit of this, but you know, 
but yeah, she, she's been, uh, she's more well adapted to it than I am. And so I learned from her in that way. But at the same time, I think uh, I, I, as an academic, I'm like, we could be, you guys could be doing this better. She's like, okay, go ahead, help me. <laughs> so sometimes I regret making uh, suggestions. So what are you guys gonna miss about Texas? Uh, the biggest thing we'll miss is, so we had, you know, we're both new in uh, New York. She grew up in Connecticut. So none of us had any family here in Southwest. So we grew, developed a family, uh, out here in, in Austin. And so we're going to miss them for sure. Right. So both of our kids were born and raised here. So they've got lifelong friends. So all those things, those are really tough. Uh, and so we're going to miss hanging out and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm definitely going to miss, uh, you know, the winners, here in Texas, which are great <laughs> year-round golfing and all that stuff. Um, but um, being closer to home, so North Carolina is, for both of us, kind of a lot of family are there. And so being closer to home, being closer to our parents that are both, you know, aging, getting up in years and, and being able to be closer to them to help them out with stuff is, is, uh, is gonna be really nice as a move to North Carolina. What are, what are some, you know, uh, being able to, to stay connected or more connected and or closer proximity with, with your folks on both sides. What are, are there some other things that you're looking forward to as far as North Carolina? Yeah. So my kids have, don't know seasons. Again, they are native Texans, so they just know hot and less hot. And uh, they also don't understand trees, right? Like we visited North Carolina and visit family and they'll just go out and be like, it's just so green. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You guys, <laughs> you don't know what that's like. So doing stuff um, outdoors, you know, being close to the ocean, all those kind of things. So I'm looking forward to kind of exploring all that with them. But th on the family side, it's like the little things that I miss. So we, we go home for the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, but it'll be like so-and-so's birthday. And we're like, man, it'd be nice to go, but not enough to spend a thousand dollars on flights. But if that's just a drive, then we can just be at stuff. And they have cousins and god sisters and god brothers that they only see once a year. So having them be able to kind of do that, and these are obviously friends of, of me, me and my wives as well. So being able to kind of be there for more regular, everyday kind of things. So it's the small things that I'm really looking forward to. Just being able to be at my godson's birthday, uh, which is the same day as my birthday. Uh, and, uh, and they live in Washington, DC. And so being able to just drive up there and kind of hang out and have that uh, is gonna be something I, I, I'm gonna cherish. Absolutely. But let me ask you this as we come towards the, the end of our time, what, share with us some of the passions in your life besides your family, your wife and your kids. Yeah. You know, what are the, some of the things that you, uh, and, and oh, by the way, besides uh, human capital organizational, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things that are, that are personal passions of yours yeah so i'm a uh i'm a, a a politic political junkie or masochist uh however you want to call it so guilty uh, guilty yeah. so uh i have i'm, I'm intimately fa fascinated by this um the the shift that the country's kind of going through and, and and the ins and outs i'm a big fan of like history so political history military history as well uh i'm a a sucker for a a Winston Churchill biography, right? Like I'll just eat that stuff up. So learning from history, my mother was like a amateur historian. And so I have this kind of tremendous interest in, in understanding times and places. Um, and, and then television, uh, 
I love, uh, you know, I love, uh, my wife calls it very dark, <laughs> dark uh, kind of uh, dramas and action movies. I, I, I love movies that really make me question my life and, and understanding of it. So um, I, I've been, one of the benefits of not being able to go out is I'm able to kind of sit and watch these shows that I, I couldn't watch before and kind of get lost in them and uh, kind of emerge and then talk about them with my friends. Like, hey, have you seen, you know, Dark on Netflix? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, you got to watch. And then they watch it. And then we kind of just talk about all the themes in it. So I guess great stories. Uh, if I had to summarize it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a good story. And then thinking about how it can apply to kind of how I see things in, in the real world. Well, uh, we, we talked to somebody. We, I asked that a similar question to somebody last week. And they said the same thing. They said, I like these shows where there's like, they, they pause. They were trying to think. They were like, it's like the show that's like through the series, it's a slow descent into hell. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty dark. <laughs> Same, the same. I, I don't know how big you are on these shows, but uh, so Breaking Bad is one of my favorite shows of all time. And, you know, there is this, you know, the character, the hero that becomes the anti-hero. Uh, and for, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there's a deep-seated Freudian psychological explanation for this, but those kind of stories always intrigue me because you kind of know how it ends, but the, the journey there is always the fascinating part. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm currently right now watching probably three shows that are all that. I started Ozark, you know, a few couple few months ago, and then I think five episodes in, I was like, I, I need some light right now. <laughs> so I've hit pause on that for like two months. Yeah. I, you know, I was only the fifth episode in the first season, for goodness sakes. But You've got a lot to go, but it's all good. But it is, it is a, it is a, a rabbit hole. So, um, you know, balance it with some light and airy. Yeah. Uh, you know, some reality TV or cartoons. I watch. I, I think because I have the kids, I, I watch stuff with them that's so frivolous and, and and joyous. That then once I put them to bed, now I'm like, all right, now let me watch something disturbing. I can do that for a couple hours and then sleep like a baby. My wife is always like, how can you watch this and go sleep? I was like, I don't know. Well, you know, on the political side, you and I might have to have a whole podcast, a whole hour of talking about, um, let's, what would Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln, if they were looking at our political environment right now, what would they, what observations would they have? That, that's a story for another time. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I'm, I'm ready. I'm there. <laughs> well, let me ask you the last question. Last question. We have, and, and first of all, thank you for investing your time in us, man. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, um, our Canvas folks um, listen to this, but also people all over the country. And it's interesting. We started this, Seku, with this uh, podcast, and it was really um, our intent was to provide an opportunity for people who aspire to be leaders or those who are in somewhere in their leadership journey um, to get a, an insider's glimpse, you know, sort of in the room. And you said in the room early, early on um, to be in the room and, and, and sort of glean, you know, these, these nuggets from, from people who have, have had different levels of success. Right. H having said that, um, 
I always close by just asking, what advice would you give to those folks who are listening who are somewhere on their journey in terms of leadership and leading people? And that's the key thing, your area of genius and expertise and brilliance. Mm. Um, what would you give them in terms of how they should be approaching this journey? Wow. Um, so I'll hit on two things, and these have been on my mind a lot recently for a number of reasons. Um, the first is, I think that, um, and this has become a mantra of mine, which is we, we really need to ask questions that we think we know the answers to. Um, and that sounds silly, but what, I, what, and if you think about this, people are doing this all the time now, right? When you have an existential crisis, you start to ask the very basic questions, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? What really matters? And once you answer those, the other questions start to all fall in line. Now it's clear what you should do in any kind of given piece. And so asking yourself the questions that maybe you thought, oh, I'm answered that. Why, why am I in this position? Why, did, why do I you know, care? What's, what's the, the goal of our group here? Um, so digging that up and asking that and asking that of yourself and your career, I think is important to do regularly because sometimes you either forgot what the answer was or the answer might change. Um, the second piece, and I, I'm always a data person, so I'm an empiricist, so I'm always like, get data, right? If you want to do something, figure out how will you know if you've done that? How will you know that you are succeeding in what you're trying to do if you're not measuring it? Um, and then the other is courage. I think, um, you know, it is a time, one of the things that I find within leadership that is most lacking is true courage. And what I mean by that is, saying the unpopular thing, knowing that you will make someone uncomfortable or you will force an uncomfortable conversation takes courage, right? Um, and so I try to implore people to have that courage when faced with a dilemma of, should I bring this up? Or, you know, I, I, you know we've been doing this one way for a long period of time, people are really comfortable. I don't wanna speak out against that. And when I dig it, it's like, well, why don't you want to speak out? It's because, well, I'm afraid that people will be unhappy with me or people might not like something. And that takes courage. But I want to implore people to, to recognize the fear. The fear is real. The consequences can be negative. But to have courage, um, to say what needs to be said, to maybe move, stand up for something that maybe has been forgotten um, and I think that that's where really where you kind of push organizations to become the best version of themselves. Amen. That's gold right there, brother. Yeah. <laughs> that's genius. Thank you. Yeah. We would bring, we knew we would bring it back to your genius at the end. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's something I was talking about as far as leadership in academia, right? In this whole going back to school thing. And one of the things that I find when you get people in private, they're like, well, it should go this way, but they're afraid to say that in a public space. And I was like, why? <laughs> we need you to say it in a public space so we can have a real conversation about stuff, you know? And you're the lead, you're the head of this thing. If you don't do it, who's gonna do it? So. No, you're exactly right. Well, listen, thank you again. Um, you invested your time, you, get, you shared just a glimpse of your brilliance. Um, and we really do appreciate it. And, and not only do I appreciate it at Canvas as far as the folks who are listening, but, but within our credit union in industry, um, 
you know, the investments that you've been making, all the people that you've touched, you've had so much impact. Um, a lot of people think very, very highly of you. And wow. so uh, thank you for, for sharing with us and, and uh, caring enough to do that. We really do appreciate that. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. This is my passion, my purpose. So uh, I enjoy it. And uh, I do, I have listened to you guys uh, before. And so when I got the invite, I, I felt like, all right, maybe I've made it, you know, look, my mom. <laughs> uh, so it's been a pleasure. Um, and uh, let's, let's figure out when we can do our, uh, our, our political history uh, pod. I'm all Wait, in for this. We, it's going to take courage and we have it. We're going for it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Sekou Burmese, thank you so much for joining us on In the Room. We appreciate it, brother. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. <laughs>